Part Four, Chapters Ten and Eleven of Doctor Doolittle's Post Office. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Doctor Doolittle's Post Office by Hugh Lofting. Part Four, Chapter Ten: The Postmaster General's Last Order. When Dab Dab roused the party next morning, the sun was shining through the mist upon the lake, doing its best to brighten up the desolate scenery around them poor mudface awoke with an acute attack of gout he had not been bothered by this ailment since the doctor's arrival but now he could scarcely move at all without great pain and dab-dab brought his breakfast to him where he lay john doolittle was inclined to blame himself for having asked him to go hunting in the lake for souvenirs the night before i'm afraid that was what brought on the attack said the doctor getting out his little black bag from the canoe and mixing some medicines but you know you really ought to move out of this damp country to some drier climate i am aware that turtles can stand an awful lot of wet but at your age one must be careful you know there isn't any other place i like as well said mudface it's so hard to find a country where you're not disturbed these days here drink this the doctor ordered handing him a teacup full of some brown mixture i think you will find that that will soon relieve the stiffness in your front legs the turtle drank it down and in a minute or two he said he felt much better and could now move his legs freely without pain it's a wonderful medicine that said he you are surely a great doctor have you got any more of it i will make up several bottles of the mixture and leave them with you before i go said john doodle but you really ought to get on high ground somewhere this muddy little hummock is no place for you to live isn't there a regular island in the lake where you could make your home if you're determined not to leave junganika country not one said the turtle it's all like this just miles and miles of mud and water i used to like it in fact i do still i wouldn't wish for anything better if it weren't for this wretched gout of mine well said the doctor if you haven't got an island we must make one for you make one cried the turtle how would you go about it i'll show you very shortly said john doolittle and he called cheapside to him will you please fly down to fantippo he said to the city manager and give this message to speedy the skimmer and ask him to send it out to all the postmasters of the branch offices the swallow mail is very shortly to be closed at all events for a considerable time i must now be returning to puddleby and it will be impossible for me to continue the service in its present form after i have left no man's land i wish to convey my thanks to all the birds postmasters clerks and letter carriers who have so generously helped me in this work the last favor which i am going to ask of them is a large one and i hope they will give me their united support in it i want them to build me an island in the middle of lake junganika it is for mudface the turtle the oldest animal living who in days gone by did a very great deal for man and beast for the whole world in fact when the earth was passing through the darkest chapters in all its history tell speedy to send word to all bird leaders throughout the world 
tell him I want as many birds as possible right away to build a healthy home where this brave turtle may end his long life in peace. It's the last thing I ask of the post office staff, and I hope they will do their best for me. Cheapside said that the message was so long that he was afraid he would never be able to remember it by heart. So John Doolittle told him to take it down in bird scribble, and he dictated it to him all over again. That letter, the last circular order issued by the great postmaster general to the staff of the Swallow Mail, was treasured by Cheapside for many years. He hid it under his untidy nest in St. Edmund's left ear on the south side of the chancel of St. Paul's Cathedral. He always hoped that the pigeons who lived in the front porch of the British Museum would some day get it into the museum for him. But one gusty morning, when men were cleaning the outside of the cathedral, it got blown out of St. Edmund's ear, and before Cheapside could overtake it, it sailed over the housetops into the river and sank. The sparrow got back to Junganika late that afternoon. He reported that Speedy had immediately, on receiving the doctor's message, forwarded it to the postmasters of the branch offices with orders to pass it on to all the bird leaders everywhere. It was expected that the first birds would begin to arrive here early the following morning. It was Speedy himself who woke the doctor at dawn the next day, and while breakfast was being eaten, he explained to John Doolittle the arrangements that had been made. The work, the skimmer calculated, would take three days. All the birds had been ordered to pick up a stone or a pebble or a pinch of sand from the seashore on their way and bring it with them. The larger birds, who would carry stones, were to come first, then the middle-sized birds, and then the little ones with sand. Soon, when the sky over the lake was beginning to fill up with circling ospreys, herons, and albatrosses, Speedy left the doctor and flew off to join them. There, taking up a position in the sky right over the center of the lake, he hovered motionless, as a marker for the stone-droppers. Then the work began. All day long, a never-ending stream of big birds, a dozen abreast, flew up from the sea and headed across Lake Junganika. The line was like a solid black ribbon, the birds dense, packed and close, beak to tail. And as each dozen reached the spot where Speedy hovered, twelve stones dropped into the water. The procession was so continuous and unbroken that it looked as though the sky were raining stones, and the constant roar of them splashing into the water out of the heavens could be heard a mile off. The lake in the center was quite deep, and of course tons and tons of stone would have to be dropped before the new island could begin to show above the water's surface. This gathering of birds was greater even than the one the doctor had addressed in the hollow of no man's land. It was the biggest gathering of birds that had ever been seen. For now, not only the leaders came, but thousands and millions of every species. John Doolittle got tremendously excited, and jumping into his canoe, he started to paddle out nearer to the work. But Speedy grew impatient that the top of the stone pile was not yet showing above the water, and he gave the order to double up the line, and then double again as still more birds came to help from different parts of the world. And soon, with a thousand stones falling every fraction of a second, the lake got so rough that the doctor had to put back for the turtle's hammock, lest his canoe capsize. 
All that day, all that night, and half the next day, this continued. At last, about noon on the morrow, the sound of the falling stones began to change. The great mound of seething white water, like a fountain in the middle of the lake, disappeared, and in its place a black spot showed. The noise of splashing changed to the noise of stone rattling on stone. The top of the island had begun to show. It's like the mountains peeping out after the flood, Mudface muttered to the doctor. Then Speedy gave the order for the middle-sized birds to join in, and soon the note of the noise changed again, shriller as tons and tons of pebbles and gravel began to join the downpour. Another night and another day went by, and at dawn the gallant skimmer came down to rest his weary wings, for the workers did not need a marker any longer. Now that a good-sized island stood out on the bosom of the lake for the birds to drop their burdens on. Bigger and bigger grew the homemade land, and soon Mudface's new estate was acres wide. Still another order from Speedy, and presently the rattling noise changed to a gentle hiss. The sky was now simply black with birds. The pebble shower had ceased. It was raining sand. Last of all, the birds brought seeds, grass seeds, the seeds of flowers, acorns, and the kernels of palms. The turtle's new home was to be provided with turf, with wild gardens, with shady avenues to keep off the African sun. When Speedy came to the hummock, he said, Doctor, it is finished. Mudface gazed thoughtfully out into the lake and murmured, Now, proud, Shalba is buried indeed. She has an island for a tombstone. It's a grand home you have given me, John Doolittle. Alas, poor Shalba, Mashtu the king passes, but Mudface the turtle lives on. Chapter 11 Goodbye to Fantippo Mudface's landing on his new home was quite an occasion. The doctor paddled out alongside of him till they reached the island. Until he set foot on it, John Doolittle himself had not realized what a large piece of ground it was. It was more than a quarter of a mile across. Round in shape, it rose gently from the shores to the flat center, which was a good hundred feet above the level of the lake. Mudface was tremendously pleased with it, climbing laboriously in the central plateau, from where you could see great distances over the flat country around. He said he was sure his health would quickly improve in this drier air. Dab-Dab prepared a meal, the best she could in the circumstances, to celebrate what she called the turtle's housewarming, and everyone sat down to it. There was much gaiety, and the doctor was asked to make a speech in honor of the occasion. Cheapside was dreadfully afraid that Mudface would get up to make a speech in reply, and that it would last into the following day. But to the sparrow's relief, the doctor, immediately he had finished, set about preparations for his departure. He made up the six bottles of gout mixture, and presented them to Mudface with instructions in how it should be taken. He told him that although he was closing up the post office for regular service, it would always be possible to get word to Puddleby. He would ask several birds of passage to stop here occasionally, and if the gout got any worse, he wanted Mudface to let him know, 
by letter. The old turtle thanked him over and over again, and the parting was a very affecting one. When at last the goodbyes were all said, they got into the canoe and set out on the return journey. Reaching the mouth of the river at the southern end of the lake, they paused a moment before entering the mangrove swamps and looked back. And there in the distance they could just see the shape of the old turtle standing on his new island watching them. They waved to him and pushed on. He looks just the same as we saw him the night we arrived, said Dab-Dab. You remember? Like a statue on a pedestal against the sky. Poor old fellow, murmured the doctor. I do hope he will be all right now. What a wonderful life. What a wonderful history. Didn't I tell you, doctor, said Cheapside, that it was going to be the longest story in the world? Took a day and a half a night to tell. Ah, but it's a story that nobody else could tell, said John Doodle. Good thing, too muttered the sparrow it would never do if there was many of his kind spread around this busy world of course meself i don't believe a word of the yarn i think he made it all up he had nothing else to do sitting there in the mud century after century cogitating the journey down through the jungle was completed without anything special happening but when they reached the sea and turned the bow of the canoe westward they came upon a very remarkable thing it was an enormous hole in the beach or rather a place where the beach had been taken away bodily speedy told the doctor that it was here that the birds had picked up the stones and sand on their way to junganica they had literally carried acres of the seashore nearly a thousand miles inland of course in a few months the action of the surf filled the hole so the place looked like the rest of the beach. But that is why, when many years later, some learned geologists visited Lake Junganika, they said that the seashore gravel on an island there was a clear proof that the sea had once flowed through that neighborhood, which was true in the days of the flood. But the doctor was the only scientist who knew that Mudface's island and the stones that made it had quite a different history. On his arrival at the post office, the doctor was given his usual warm reception by the king and the dignitaries of Fantippo, who paddled out from the town to welcome him back. Tea was served at once, and His Majesty seemed so delighted at renewing this pleasant custom that John Doodlittle was loath to break the news to him that he must shortly resign from the foreign mail service and sail for England. However, while they were chatting on the veranda of the houseboat, a fleet of quite large sailing vessels entered the harbor. These were some of the new merchant craft of Fantippo, which plied regularly up and down the coast, trading with other African countries. The doctor pointed out to the king that mails intended for foreign lands could now be quite easily taken by these boats to the bigger ports on the coast where vessels from Europe called every week. From that the doctor went on to explain to the king that much as he loved Fantippo and its people, he had many things to attend to in england and must now be thinking of going home and of course as none of the natives could talk bird language the swallow mail would have to be replaced by the ordinary kind of post office the doctor found that his majesty was much more distressed at the prospect of losing his good white friend 
and his afternoon tea on the houseboat than at anything else which the change would bring but he saw that the doctor really felt he had to go and at length with tears falling into his teacup he gave permission for the postmaster-general of fantippo to resign great was the rejoicing among the doctor's pets and the patient swallows when the news got about that john doodlittle was really going home at last gub-gub and jip could hardly wait while the last duties and ceremonies of closing the houseboat to the public and transferring the foreign mail service to the office in the town were performed dab-dab bustled cheerfully from morning to night while cheapside never ceased to chatter of the glories of london the comforts of a city life and all the things he was going to do as soon as he got back to his beloved native haunts there was no end to the complimentary ceremonies which the good king coco and his courtiers performed to honor the departing doctor for days and days previous to his sailing canoes came and went between the town and the houseboat bearing presents to show the good will of the fantippins during all this having to keep smiling the whole time the doctor got sadder and sadder at leaving his good friends and he was heartily glad when the hour came to pull up the anchor and put to sea people who have written the history of the kingdom of Antipo all devote several chapters to a mysterious white man who in a very short space of time made enormous improvements in the mail the communications the shipping the commerce the education and the general prosperity of the country indeed it was through john doodlittle's quiet influence that king coco's reign came to be looked upon as the golden age in fantippin history a wooden statue still stands in the market-place to his memory the excellent postal service continued after he left the stamps with coco's face on them were as various and as beautiful as ever on the occasion of the first annual review of the fantippo merchant fleet a very fine two-shilling stamp was struck in commemoration showing his majesty inspecting the new ships through a lollipop quizzing glass the king himself became a stamp collector and his album was as good as a family photo album containing as it did so many pictures of himself the only awkward incident that happened in the record of the post office which the doctor had done so much to improve was when some ardent stamp collectors wishing to make the modern stamps rare plotted to have the king assassinated in order that the current issues should go out of date but the plot was happily discovered before any harm was done years afterwards the birds visiting puddleby told the doctor that the king still had the flowers in the wooden boxes of his old houseboat carefully tended and watered in his memory his majesty they said never gave up the fond hope that some day his good white friend would come back to fantippo with his kindly smile his instructive conversation and his jolly tea-parties on the post-office veranda the end end of part four end of dr doolittle's post-office by hugh lofting